0: And for those of you who remain, you can open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. My name's Morgan Maitland. I'm the teaching pastor here at Summit. I see some new faces. I'm glad to have you this Sunday. It's a privilege to preach God's Word week in and week out. I took a little break last week and we enjoyed a sermon from John Stead on evangelism which was great, timely. We needed that. We needed that encouragement to evangelize. But I'm gung-ho and ready to be back here and preaching God's Word. First Peter 4. I'm going to read verses 7-11. through 11. It says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, In everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, your diagnosis is not good. Neither the prognosis. The doctor tells you, you have three to six months left of life. What are you going to do? I want you to think about that. You have three to six months left of life. What are you going to do with it? What's on your bucket list, if I could ask it that way? Skydiving? Anybody want to skydive? Maybe you want to buy an RV and travel across the U.S. of A. to see all the sights, the things that you've never seen. Maybe you want to take your wife on a vacation, perhaps back to your honeymoon spot, to re-enjoy that precious moment with her again. You may want to hug and hold your kids as much as possible before you pass away. Maybe you want to learn a new skill, just to mix things up a little bit. You probably want to make happy memories, though, and take lots of pictures so that you can leave those behind with your loved ones before you go. What's on your bucket list with the end looming near? Let me ask you, to be honest with yourself, rhetorical question, did serve the church make your bucket list? Is that on the critical list of priorities to give yourself to the church of Jesus Christ in those last few months of your life? Did it make your list? I'll tell you, it was on the Lord's list. The Lord Jesus, the night He was betrayed, the night before His trial and death, what did we find Him doing? We read it in our scripture reading today. John 13, he laid aside his outer garment, took the position of a slave, and he washed his disciples' feet. We see the Lord Jesus on the eve of his death serving. Serving. The life of Jesus Christ, the one we follow, was a life marked by service. In fact, Matthew 20, he says this, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man, referring to Himself, came not to be served, but to do what? To serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The life of Jesus Christ was one marked by service. I think about also the Apostle Paul. The ministry of the Apostle Paul, the author of most of the New Testament, the epistles to the churches, I'm reminded of what he told the Thessalonians. In First Thessalonians, he said, not only did I come sharing the gospel with you, the good news of the gospel, he said, I, we gave you our very lives. We labored and toiled among you, served you. Certainly, the apostles' lives would be lives marked by Service. Christian, let me ask you, is your life marked by service? Are you one who serves, giving yourself selflessly to others for their sake, not yours? Do you serve in the church? Do you serve the Lord Jesus Christ's precious bride, the church? I I believe because we see these markers in the life of Christ and we see these markers in the life of the apostles and we have commands in Scripture like the, ones, the one that I just read, then one of the signs of a healthy Christian is that he or she is one who serves. Service is a sign of a healthy Christian. This is our fifth installment in a series we're doing on the markers or the signs of a healthy Christian, and I believe service to be one of them. A Christian is, is one who serves because Our Master served. The Lord Jesus Christ served. In fact, I'd say this. You are most like Jesus Christ when you serve. You are most like Jesus Christ when you are serving. Because that is what He did. He's the embodiment of service in His life. As far as following Jesus, actions that you can apply in your life, you become most like Christ... If you want to be conformed to His image, you become most like Him when you serve others. You are not like Christ if you're just a consumer. You're not like Christ if you're just a consumer. If you're walking into a place thinking, what, how does this benefit me? How can I be fed here? How can I be served here? That is the antithesis of the mind of Christ. Christ rather walked into settings and thought to himself, what will benefit these people? How can I help them? How can I serve them? And so that's what we want to be as followers of Christ. Christians, we want to embody and manifest the character of Christ. And one of the essential tenets then is that of service. So this is a a message calling us to serve, to be a servant, not a consumer in church, because good discipleship produces servants. And we're going to anchor into this passage in 1 Peter 4 and, and exposit this passage. So we're going to set our anchor here and you know, dive into this passage to understand what God has for us here. But I want to put before you four passages that talk about service in the, uh, in the life of a church. So I want you to write these down because they'll come up throughout the sermon. I'm going to reference them. Um, and I call them the fours and the twelves, okay? The fours and the twelves. Four passages for you that talk about loving others and serving others in the church, okay? The fours and the twelve. Two fours. Ephesians 4. Write these down. These are good passages to have in your back pocket. Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. Here we are in 1 Peter 4. Those are the fours. Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. Then you have the twelves, the twelves, two twelves, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. If you want to do a further study, which I encourage, on the topic of serving or even church life in general, go to the fours, go to the twelves. Those would be a good starting place for you to study this topic as it is lived out in the church. So we're going to anchor though here in 1 Peter 4, Verses 7-11, to and I see four reasons here. Four reasons that make up your outline to serve. Peter gives us four reasons to serve. And the first reason is this. Serve because the end is near. Serve because the end is near. That ought to motivate us to serve. Look at the beginning of verse 7. The end of all things is at hand, therefore, followed by these commands. So the motivation that should cause us to love one another, that should cause us to be sober-minded, self-controlled, that should cause us to serve is this, the end of all things is at hand. Now, what does that mean? A good cross-reference for us would be James 5.8 to further understand what this end is. James 5 says, You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. See the same language there, is at hand, but this passage tells us what the end is. It is when the Lord comes again. The second coming of Christ. So the second coming of Christ Christ is at hand. That's what I believe the same end in 1 Peter chapter 4 is. And the Bible calls this age that we live in, you know between the ascension of Jesus Christ, He came down, became a man, lived a perfect life. He died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. And He rose again from the grave. And He appeared to many. And then He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And Jesus Christ remains at the right hand of the Father until He comes back down. till He returns. And He judges those, His enemies that are against Him, and He draws together His church into a kingdom, a literal 1,000-year kingdom. That, that's what we believe and teach here at Summit Bible Church. And we live in this age between His ascension and His return. And the Bible calls this age... Get this, the last days, the time of the end. We see this language used in Hebrews 1, verse 2, 1 John 2, 18. We are in the last days, anticipating, leaning forward to Christ's return. You need to know that today you're closer to the return of Christ than you were yesterday. Yesterday you were closer to the return of Christ than the day before that. With each day, your anticipation should be growing. Christ is going to come back. And that's good news for the Christian, amen? Amen. The hope is coming. Christ is coming back to make all wrongs right. For the non-Christian, that's scary. Because that means the judgment is coming. So how should we spend our time? In light of His impending arrival... In light of his coming that is nearer today than it was yesterday and will be nearer tomorrow if you make it than the day before. How should we spend our time? What should we invest our time into? And this really reminds me of the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents. When Jesus was here on earth, he told this parable in the midst of this bigger discussion called the Olivet Discourse. He was teaching the people about the signs of his return, what they should look for, the signs that would tell them that he's coming back. And in the middle of that preaching, that message, he has this little parable called the parable of the talents. And this is a parable about how you ought to invest your time before his return. Jesus tells this parable and he says, "...a master entrusts his property to his servants." To one, he gives five talents. To the second one, he gives two talents. And to the third, he gives one talent. Now, the first two men invest their talents. They take the five, they take the two, and they double their investment. The third man takes his one precious talent, and he buries it in the ground. He hides it, the text says, in light of his master's return. Well, the master returns from his trip. And he he rewards the first and the second man for their investments. They doubled their investment. They made good use of the money. And the master's response is is great. It says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little and I'll set you over much. He tells that to the first two. Now the third man comes in. And the third man presents one talent to his master said, I was fearful of you. I wanted to hide it and protect your investment, Master. But the Master says this in response to that last man. He says, you wicked and slothful, lazy servant. You should have invested this talent to earn interest like the other men. And the worthless servant at the end of the parable, get this, is cast into outer darkness. Wow. That's a severe punishment. For this man who, get this, wasted his time. That's the point of the parable. The point of the parable, Jesus says, is is I'm coming back. I'm just like this master. The end is near, so don't sit on your talents. Don't hide them. Invest. Invest your time. Invest your resources. Not in this world, but in the world to come. And it will pay back dividends. Spend it on the things that matter. Ephesians 5 says something similar. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Why? For the days are evil. You, my friend, you have one life, and you happen to live in the last days. Christ's return is coming The posture of time is leaning forward to a climactic conclusion. The master's coming back, and one day you will be held accountable for how you spent your life. Are you wasting it? Or are you investing it in the things that matter? Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, all the more important to be self-controlled, to have a sober, sober mind in your prayers... To keep loving one another, in verse 10, serve one another. That would be a good use of your time in these last days, with the end looming. So, are you wasting time on selfish and worldly concerns, or are you investing it by, specifically as we look today, serving? Serving. Serve because the end is near. Number two, second, serve because it's reasonable. I like this serve because it's reasonable serve because it makes sense really I want to show you a little insight into the grammar of this text the two main commands in the imperative form are in verse 7 they are be self-controlled and sober-minded in your prayers those are the two main commands Verse 8, which appears in a commanding tense, keep loving one another, and then verse 10, serve one another, those are actually participles. Participles which modify and support the main commands. Now, they have this imperative thrust to them so that we take them as commands, but nonetheless, they're tied back to those anchor commands be self controlled, be sober minded. Now, what does it mean to be self-controlled? It means to display reasonable behavior, wisdom, exercise sound judgment. To be sober-minded, that second word, means to exercise self-restraint. To be sober, right, we think literally, if you're you're sober, you're not under the influence of a substance, then you are exercising self-restraint from placing yourself under that substance. In this context, it's specifically linked to self-restraint in prayer. Do you see that? Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. But thinking about having, exercising sound judgment, reasonable behavior, being the two main commands, and these participles, love one another and serve one another, support those main commands, here's the point of it all. The grammar explains this. Love and service are self-controlled, reasonable behaviors. They're linked to reasonableness, sound judgment. So it makes sense that a Christian, in light of what Peter just said, would love one another and serve one another. Now, think about this. Follow me. Think about what Peter just said. The end of all things is near. You know what he said before that? you should expect to suffer because Christ suffered. You know what he says after this section? He says in verse 12, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you. This letter is not written to a people like us in comfortable America. This letter was written to people under duress. Threats of persecution, probably suffering persecution, and Peter promises them more persecution to come, suffering. Now, what do you think the world would say is reasonable behavior in light of those circumstances? I'll tell you what the world will say clear the shelves at target, hoard and hide, run for the hills, move away. That's what the world would say. Protect yourself but what does Peter suggest is reasonable behavior in light of these circumstances in this passage? No, no, no. Don't freak out, he says. Don't run away. Don't isolate. Don't become a recluse and hide. Keep loving one another and keep what? Serving one another. That's reasonable behavior. That would be a display of self-control. That makes sense for the Christian. Is that what you do when difficulty arises, when troubles come? Do you continue to engage in service like your master or do you hide? Do you hide? I think about the necessity of us continuing to gather, continuing to come together and and I think back to Hebrews chapter 10. Remember we talked about fellowship? He says, don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, why, as you see the day drawing near, we need this now more than ever. We need the fellowship. We need love from one another. We need to serve one another and be served by others. This is important stuff in light of the end. This is not at times rational behavior as far as the world would say, but this is supernatural, rational behavior. I think about the recent bombings in Kiev, Ukraine. If you've been paying attention to the news, you've heard about it. I'm reminded of a story that Dr. John MacArthur shared about the missionaries he supports there. He uh, contacts them and he invites them back to the States as a place of refuge to to hide and, and essentially be taken away from the threat of the bombings. And they kindly refuse him. They say, thank you, but no thank you. And these people, these missionaries say, hey, take care of our children though. They, they're stateside. Can you take care of our kids? We are going to stay here in Kiev and minister to people, they say. We're going to, in fact, offer the basement of our church as a place of refuge for the community. We're going to keep serving our community by not only providing their needs and shelter, but we're going to preach the gospel to them and invite all to come in. We're going to keep loving and serving. Wow. And the world would say, that makes no sense. We say, well, that makes all the sense in the world for the gospel, for the people of God. And we pray that if we were in those circumstances, we would do the same. We would keep loving one another and we'd keep serving one another. Meeting the needs of those, especially in the church, and even extending our acts of service into the community. Because we want to be a good witness of Christ. This is reasonable behavior. You know why? Because it, it marks the person that we follow, Jesus Christ. It makes sense because of the one we follow. And we recounted that on the night of His betrayal, before His crucifixion, Jesus doesn't hide. He washes His disciples' feet He serves. And then, do you remember what He says to them after He does this? He says in John 13, 13, You call Me Teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Teacher, have washed your feet, if I've served you, you also ought to wash one another's feet for i have given you an example that you also should do just as i have done for you this is an expectation from the lord jesus makes sense christians serve because christ served even in the midst of turmoil difficulty threats persecution you know what doesn't make sense A person who calls himself a Christian but doesn't serve. Well, that's oxymoronic. That doesn't make sense because while you claim to follow Christ who's marked by service, you don't follow in his footsteps? That doesn't make a lot of sense at all. So evaluate. Do you serve? Do you serve with the right heart to follow in the footsteps of your master motivated by his love In His service for others. And and you want to do the same. Do you possess that heart? Is service a marker of your life? Third reason here. Serve because the end is near. Serve because it's reasonable. Third, serve because it's a stewardship. It's a stewardship. Look now, let's focus at verse 10. It says this, As each has received a gift... Let's just break apart that phrase. As each is to say every true Christian. As each. Each and every true believer in Christ. What? Has received a gift. Notice you don't create the gift. You don't conjure it up. You can't name and claim the gift. I want to be a preacher. I want to be a a merciful person. Right? You don't lay, lay claim to these things. You have received them. If you're in Christ, this is something you got, and not from you, from Him. Specifically, who gave us the gift? Who gave us this gift? In, in our passage, it refers to God, stewards of God's varied grace. Romans 12 3 says, Each has received it according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. But it's interesting, if you look at Ephesians 4, 7, remember the 4s and the 12s, that passage says, the grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. sounds to me like this is a Trinitarian job. The Trinity Gives you the gifts. I would put it this way God the Father, it seems, assigns the gift. God the Son achieves the gift. And God the Spirit administers the gift. Wow. A lot was involved in you receiving a spiritual gift, Christian. And you receiving this gift, this grace from God. God did a lot to pull that off, did He not? And how, when do we receive this gift? Well, 1 Corinthians 12 explains that when we are baptized by the Spirit into the church of Christ, when we become a Christian, we are born again and we receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. And again, it's the Spirit who administers the gift. So I believe you get the spiritual gift at conversion. At conversion. So God gives it to you. It's a Trinitarian job. A lot was accomplished to give it to you. You received it at conversion. And so here's the point. Your gift is not up for you to decide how to use it. The point is that it's from God. And our passage says specifically, to use it to serve one another as good stewards. Of God's varied grace. This is His gift that He has placed in you for what? How does He want us to use the gift? Use it to serve one another. That's the point. That's the end. Your spiritual gift is not for show and tell, it's not a trophy to put on display and draw attention to your own achievement. It's not for you to run a successful business. It's not so that you can make your home look like the cover of Architectural Digest. It's not to build your credentials. It's not to add to your resume. It's not to impress your family and friends. It's not a cool party trick. I would argue even this, it's not even for your own spiritual fulfillment, primarily. What's it for? Others. Serving others. It's for serving, specifically in this context, the church. I want you to think of yourself as an instrument in the hand of a good master, a brilliant engineer, a perfect architect, an immaculate artist. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, I don't have time to serve, and so I'm not going to. I don't have the energy to serve, so I'm not going to. I haven't yet developed the skills that I need to serve, so I'm not going to. Whatever the excuse, you know, we make a variety of excuses to not serve. But when you think that way, you need to understand that you're an instrument refusing the master. You're like a pencil looking back at the architect saying, I'm not going to draw. You're like the paintbrush running away from the artist. (laughs) He has a design for you to use your gift for service and so therefore, a Christian, that's how you ought to use it. Service is the end. Serving the church. That's good stewardship of God's varied grace. This word varied is, is cool. It's a uniqueness. It's a manifoldness. There's great diversity in our unity. And this is a beautiful thing. When each part is working together to accomplish one end, In a variety of ways, variety of activities, variety of giftedness, it is a beautiful picture of the manifold wisdom of God. Literally the multicolored wisdom of God. And so people with a variety of gifts, even furthermore, a variety of ethnicities, even furthermore, a variety of cultural backgrounds can come together in a fellowship like this and exalt and glorify God by serving one another. It's beautiful. Romans 12 says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members don't all have the same function, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. 1 Corinthians 12.4 says, There are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. Diversity, unity. Ephesians 4.16 says, The whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, I don't know much about cars, but I know this. When there is a problem with one part of the engine, it affects the whole engine. I don't know much about the human body or human anatomy, but I know this. If there is a problem with one of the parts, even sometimes the most insignificant parts, it affects the whole body. I mean, how many of us would testify to the fact that a, even an ingrown toenail puts us out of business? Right. So in order for this organism to work, the church, the building, each part needs to work properly. Each part needs to contribute and to be serving. This is critical for the growth and unity of the church. And you know what's cool is that you've been uniquely gifted for this task. You've been given a gift to use in service. So get after it. Use your gift to the end of service for the glory of God. Now, there are a variety of spiritual gifts listed in Scripture. You might be thinking to yourself, I don't even know what the spiritual gifts are. Well, you can find these lists, and guess where? The 4s and the 12s. Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, Romans 12, and 1 Corinthians 12. I encourage you to go back and investigate and understand what these spiritual gifts are. I believe in our passage, the 1 Peter 4, Peter offers kind of two categories of gifts. He is speaking gifts and serving gifts. Um, but the point that he's making is not so much about the gifts themselves. He says, whoever speaks is one who speaks. Whoever serves is one who serves. He's not making so much a, a fuss about the gift or the particularity of them but rather the power behind the gift. Look back at the text. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. So when somebody gifted to preach, when somebody gifted to teach, when somebody gifted to exhort through the Scriptures, and if they're doing it well, if they're doing it the way that God calls them to do that, which is that they're keeping to the book, then when they speak, when they preach, When they exhort God's word, there is great power behind those words. There's great power and influence behind the believer who is gifted to speak, to preach, to exhort, to teach God's word into other people's lives. Because the power, it's not them, it's God. It's the oracles of God. It's the word of God. Same thing for serving. It's not so much the power of the servant. Man, this person is involved in so much activity, they're just serving everywhere. It's not them, it's the Lord. It's the God behind them who strengthens them, gives them the strength that God supplies. That word supplies, by the way, is to abundantly, lavishly supply. Overabundance. God provides supernatural strength and endurance for the servant. Whether it's through their acts of hospitality, acts of mercy, acts of generosity, administration helps. God supplies that strength to meet that need. Now, some of you might be thinking, again, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. I don't know how I've been uniquely designed by God, so how am I supposed to use it in service? That's a common question. It's not a bad one. I want to give you four helps, though, to understand your spiritual gift and to use it in the context of serving in the church. Four helps, and and they all start with the letter S. Here's the first one. Serve. Wait a minute. I thought I'm supposed to understand my gift or know my gift to know how to use it in service. No, no, no. Serve to understand your gift so that you can use it in further service. That's how it works. You know, there's only so much that in, in a lot of professions that you can learn from a book. But how do you really get the life-on-life practical experience? By doing it, right? Hands-on, practical. So you need to start by serving. Meet a need that is there. Fill a spot. Get hands-on. And you know what? Furthermore, I'd say this. Develop a selfless heart by serving in ways that are difficult or uncomfortable for you. Ways that don't draw attention to yourself. There's a good place to start. Start in the background, just meeting needs in the background so that you don't get tempted by your pride to elevate yourself or to think much of yourself. But start by serving. Start by getting in there, rubbing shoulders with other saints, practicing. The second step I would say, so meet the the need, meet the end by serving. The second thing I'd say is study. Study. Romans 12, 6-8, these are the specific lists within those passages. 1 Corinthians 12, 8-10, Ephesians 4, 11, 1 Peter 4, 11. These are the lists of spiritual gifts offered in the Scripture. I encourage you even further than that to grow in your knowledge of God, to understand the spiritual gifts. What are they? How could they be manifest in your life? To know them well, which gifts have ceased? which gifts continue on, and that's a further theological study. But study God's Word. Grow in your knowledge and understanding of what His Word says about spiritual giftedness and what the priority of spiritual giftedness is. Third, self-evaluate. Assess your interest. Assess yourself, how you're doing in your service. Do you sense that this is what God has called you to do, or are you sensing this is not what God has called you to do? Make sure that it is a sincere and selfless desire, not a prideful one. Not, hey, I don't receive a, a bunch of attention on the setup crew, so I want to make sure that I serve in a place that gets me more attention. That's, that's a prideful motive, right? And so you want to self-evaluate. You want to guard your heart against bad motives, and as you're serving... Self-evaluate. and After studying, seek to understand how God has called you to serve. And then a fourth component, submit. Submit. What I mean by submit is to submit to the critical feedback of others. Submit to the church. Submit to one another. Hebrews talks about that. Submitting to one another, deferring to one another. Submitting to the critical feedback of others. I believe that the Holy Spirit who unites the believers together is also the Holy Spirit who speaks through believers into the lives of other people. You know, this is more important than American Idol. Critical feedback is good, especially within the context of the church. Because what's at stake? Right? It's not just the fulfillment of your dreams as a professional singer, but it's the health of the church. Right? It's so that the body works together. And so we need that critical feedback, sometimes that Simon Cowell feedback more than ever, right? We need people to be truthful, but truth that's tethered with grace and gentleness and love. We need a brother sometimes to come up and say, hey brother, I'm really encouraged and I see a lot of fruit when you're doing this, but can I help provide some correction and some feedback on this area that I think you need some help in? This either needs to be further developed or... Maybe you shouldn't be doing this. You should focus your time here because I see giftedness here. That's a difficult conversation. That's a difficult conversation to receive. A lot of times that's more difficult to give. But we need that from one another, right? What about that passage in Ephesians chapter 4 telling us to speak the truth in love? So we need to be faithful to give each other feedback. We need to open ourselves up to feedback from one another. Hey, how do you think I'm doing in this area? You just teach a lesson, maybe in a children's class, or you lead a small group, and and you're trying to understand, do I have a leadership gift? Do I have a teaching gift? Ask for feedback and be open to the response. God is faithful to work through the lives of His people and the interactions of of church members. And you know what? Sometimes it's not a perfect sure shot. Sometimes you'll get some feedback and it's like, yeah, that seems a little off-kilter. That's off center but ask for another's feedback and another's. Use wisdom and prudence, obviously, but submit to others in the church and assess how you're doing through the input of others. So serve, engage, get hands-on, start serving, and then study the Word of God and grow in your knowledge of Him and your understanding of spiritual gifts. Self-evaluate. Is this what God has called me to do? Is there... A further calling in my life? Do I need to move to this area, right? Making sure that we're meeting needs first, that we have this heart that's selfless but not prideful, and then submitting to the feedback of others in the church. And through that process, the Lord is going to affirm in your heart how he's gifted you. So those are just helps to get you moving forward. Serve because it's a stewardship of God's varied grace. The end is that we're selflessly serving one another. So serve because the end is near. Serve because it's reasonable. Finally, or serve because it's a stewardship. I'm mindful of the time. Finally, serve because it glorifies God. Serve because it glorifies God. This is the chief end of all things. What is the chief end of man? Westminster Confession. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. 1 Peter 4.11 B, it says, in order that, here's the purpose, here's the aim, here's the target, in order that, we do all these things, in order that, in everything, pass everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Isn't it interesting that a conversation about church community ends with a doxology, We're just talking about how to relate to one another, how to love and serve one another. And and Peter is thrust into a doxology, which is basically to profess praise, to glorify God. It's because as we function according to God's design, as a result of His redemptive work in our lives, and we work together, varied grace, united and joined together, producing this living organism, the church that grows and expands, that gives God glory. As everything else in this world does. That's our chief end. And that's the chief end of our service. That the Lord God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's how sinful men like you and I, sinful women, can glorify a holy God. How? Through Jesus Christ. Because it's through Jesus Christ that sinful man can be made right before a holy God. Because he died on the cross for our sins. And by his grace, through faith in that work, we can be born again. And we can be brought into unity through Jesus Christ. Different men and women can be joined together in a united fellowship. And it's through Jesus Christ that we can love one another the way he's called us to. Because it's his love that works through us. It's through Jesus Christ that you have your spiritual gift. He accomplished it. He achieved it for you. And He intends for you to use it in the service to His bride. Therefore, it makes sense through Jesus Christ that you glorify God. That you're able to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To Him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus Christ is glorified as the Father is glorified. Dominion is an expression of rule. It's a reminder of His Lordship. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church, the King of the kingdom. He's the Son of David, the promised offspring to the house of David that will establish His throne and His kingdom forever. These words are echoed in Revelation 5. We see a scene of heaven. We have the... The Father sitting on the throne, and at His right hand we have the Lamb as one slain. And the multitude say with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. This is not an ancient hymn for old times. This is not even just a hymn for the church today. But this is the hymn of eternity. The doxology that will outlive us and into the eternal future all glory and honor and power to Him forever and ever. There's your purpose. If you're in Christ, that's why you serve. Not for your own glory. Not for your own attention. (laughs) It's not all about you. The world doesn't revolve around you. Or any man, nonetheless. It revolves and centers you on the glory of God through Jesus Christ. And so if there's any reason to serve, to get on it, to give your life to others in the church, may it at least be to the glory of God, that God would be glorified in your life, that you would make much of Him and little of yourself, just as John the Baptist did. Let me close the message in prayer and we're going to go into a time of communion. Father God, we give you glory. We at least profess and and say with our, our mouths that you deserve all the glory, the honor, the power forever and ever. We acknowledge that verbally, God. May we acknowledge that in our lives and through our service. God, help us to not serve, to draw attention to ourselves, to not live our lives as though it's all about us, Help us to give ourselves, to be selfless as Christ is selfless, but through Christ glorify you and bring glory to the Son himself in the way that we reflect his character in our lives. As we remember the cross and the atonement of Jesus Christ in our time of communion here, God, I pray that you would just warm our hearts to the cross, that you'd humble us, that you'd help us to confess sin, to be right with one another so that we would enjoy communion, this great act that we partake of regularly to remember who you are and what you did for us. In Jesus' name, amen.